Hey everybody, this is episode 122 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas, introing this episode today, and I've got a really interesting interview with director Sanjay Rawal, who just released last year the movie, the documentary, 3100 Run and Become, which is a documentary about a 3,100-mile race in Queens that you may never have heard of, but is absolutely insane, where these athletes run 3,100 miles around a half-mile city block in Queens in the middle of the summer. Runners have 52 days to complete the race, which means they have to average about 60 miles a day running loops around this half-mile city block. The documentary follows the race as well as looks at some other running cultures like the Navajo Indians here in the U.S., subsistence hunters in Africa, as well as these running monks in Japan that are using running as a path to enlightenment. And the race itself, the 3,100-mile race, is called the Self-Transcendence 3,100-mile race as it was started by an Indian guru who believed that running and physical activity was a path to enlightenment. So this is a fascinating interview. I'm going to jump right into it with Sanjay, and you're going to learn not only about the race, but also a little bit about his own running journey and how it relates to the story that he told here in this documentary. So excited about this discussion. Here we go. Welcome, Sanjay, to the show. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Winter is kind of broken where I live in New York City, and uh, I ran in shorts and a t-shirt for the first time all season last weekend. Perfect. So you're, you're starting to see the, the sun rising in the horizon where you can actually get outside and do it again. You know, it's the best time of year here because come June, when the 3,100-mile race starts, the effective temperature is in the hundreds. So I just try <laughs> to enjoy these few months. Yes, we know that all too well in our world here in Austin. When you go from being able to run in the middle of the day, like on a day like today, where it's a nice spring day, to only having to sort of corral your running at the early hours and the late hours of the day if you want to survive our warm and humid summers as well. So I get it. I want to talk about your running to start. I know that you ran in high school, but I want to talk about your relationship with running and how that's evolved through the years. I heard, I've heard you reference in other interviews that as a kid, you did what you were told as, as, a, as a good son to your parents. And so I would imagine running was one of those things you did because they wanted you to. Is that the way it was? And if so, then how has it evolved to you now? Because I would imagine you have a very different relationship with it now. So it's a great question. My, my, my parents are first generation immigrants from India. And technically I was too, but I, I moved here with them uh, when I was a baby. And we moved to Boulder in the 70s. Uh, so I would imagine my, my parents were influenced by like the rise of a running culture there. But when, when we moved to California, where I basically grew up um, from late elementary school onwards, you know, they had me do everything. I'm, I'm from India, like it, and all the stereotypes, are, you know, are, are pretty true. Like my parents came from villages, so they, you know, saw all the opportunity here. And I played like, I don't know, five sports. Um, I was, a, became an Eagle Scout. 
I ran track, cross country, all those things. And my, my parents didn't really, really push me in any one single way. They just kind of made sure that I did as much as I could. Um, again, I, I grew up in California. So knowing that you guys have like way, way more exceptional runners than I will ever be, I can say honestly, you know, I was, you know, top seven or eight in the 800 meters uh, across the state in California. And, you know, California is like Texas. We've got, it's a big deal. We've got fast people. Like I was, yeah. as a senior, I was running, you know, invitational meets that like Marion Jones was at. So like that was the mm-hmm. caliber of California then. Um, so I, I, you know, then went to college and I went to uh, Cal Berkeley. And again, being from an immigrant background, like my parents had no conception that you could ever run as a career. Um, it's like, you know, maybe baseball, maybe basketball, maybe football. So there was no thought of me devoting any time in college other than to academics. You know, I, I did run workouts with uh, the Caltrack team. And, you know, I was the same year in high school and in college as Richie Boulay. Um, but it was really clear to me that, like, God, you know, he, in, in high school, he was eight seconds faster than me in the mile, which hmm. at any level, it's it's a it's a huge gap. That's a lot. Furthermore, like I could look in, in in the eyes of people like him and realize like he he wanted more out of running than I ever wanted. He understood something, I would guess, about running that I didn't. To me, running was about competition. And when I quickly realized that at the collegiate level, there's no way I was gonna place as consistently as I did in high school, I burned out. And it frankly wasn't until I started making this movie in my early 40s and spending time on the Navajo reservation with Native American runners, you know, spending time in the Kalahari Desert with runners that come from a lineage 125,000 years old, uh, to being, you know, one of the, the the few people that's got to shadow a marathon monk up in the the highlands of Kyoto, that I really understood the attitude I needed to have to get as much out of running as I saw other people getting. Did you enjoy running in high school and college? I enjoyed winning, you know, <laughs> and again, it's like, you know, you're, you're a, a scholar of the period and in, in the nineties, it was all about like high intensity tempo, high intensity speed workouts, and everything was always pedal to the metal. And I never enjoyed it. I, I, I enjoyed competition. I enjoyed the camaraderie. I enjoyed winning, but I did not enjoy running. Interesting. So how does that contrast with your relationship with it now? You just you said you just went on a run there in New York. So what the, was that like and how does it compare? The, the run that changed me was when we were just beginning to, to develop the, the movie 3100, Run and Become. And I went for a run with, with one of our Navajo characters, Sean Martin, who's you know, a, a former collegiate star at NAU, um, brothers, um, older brothers both ran 215 marathons, Olympic trials qualifiers. And he's now the race director of probably the most beautiful ultra, um, dare I say, in, in the United States, the, the Canyon de Chez, uh, 55 kilometer in Arizona. Uh, we, we left for one of his morning runs and I'm waiting for my, my watch to like sync up with the GPS satellites. I'm thinking about like the mileage we're going to do, how it fits in my week. And before we started running, I've already like checked off the workout. So mm-hmm. I'm not present, but I realize as soon as he takes a step out the door that, and I, I, I learned this later, that 
he is open to the idea of that morning run changing who he is as a person, like literally making him a better person. And I saw the tremendous difference in attitude from someone like him who grew up in a traditional running culture, as opposed to myself, who kind of learned it by very poor osmosis. <laughs> it's a way of being versus a thing to do. And it, it helped his performance. Like he's an exceptional ultra runner. Um, and it's, it's the idea, as, as, as coaches have told high performance athletes from time immemorial, like don't look at your watch, listen to your body. But what, what does that actually mean on a spiritual level? That's what we tried to uh, explore through the movie. So, but practically for you after that run, what, is, what does that mean that's different now when you go out? So the, f the first thing I, I, I realized was that, you know, and I, I've, I've been on a spiritual path since my, my late teens. I meditate, I pray, I, I do all the types of disciplines associated with that. And I finally realized that running could be an integral part of my spiritual practice. That, you know, it's like, I, I don't want to stop meditating. I don't want to stop trying to be a better person until I breathe my last. And how can I start looking at running so that I can do it till the very day I leave the earth? Uh, so it's, it's the idea of like developing a lifelong relationship with running and developing a different set of goals that stretch beyond season to season. It's interesting. When I started running, I didn't do it in high school I was a soccer player but I got into it after I finished soccer because I needed a new competitive outlet and even though at the time I wasn't necessarily competitive with others I could be competitive with myself and doing races and focusing on PRs and all those things was what drove me and without those things when I didn't have a race to train for I wouldn't run that was my relationship with the sport it was purely about competing in whatever way I was competing at the time over time, that has significantly evolved where I'm still competitive and I still want to get faster and I still have that part of the pursuit. But also now I know I, could, I can do it and enjoy doing it for other reasons. I'm totally with you. For me, it's also about being with people and, and using it as a community opportunity in the context of our world here in Austin. But I find that it's interesting that it is possible for those two things to coexist, the competitive side as well as the more spiritual or community-oriented side. It is possible for those things to coexist, but it's hard. It's almost like running nirvana if you get there. For, Do you sure. find that you're still competitive in a sense? Yeah, and you, you know, like like, like the, the the race that the, that the, the movie's based on, the 3,100-mile race was started by an Indian spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy, who was you know, an incredible adherent of like the most contemplative practices in life. And he called that race the self-transcendence 3,100-mile race, understanding that, you know, there's a tremendous value to competition. One of the, the, the things that really keeps us back in life is a sense of doubt or our mind giving us a, a sense of, of, of limitation and barrier. And when you put yourself in an uncomfortable position, and in a position like in a race where you are literally trying to do your best in a way that we obviously don't try to do every single workout day in and day out, you know, you have the ability to really vault in terms of 
your expectations in terms of your own um, understanding of yourself. I mean, you, I, I, I find that you learn so much more in competition um, than almost any other aspect of life just because of the sheer discomfort, mental and physical, that you force yourself to, to enter. It's interesting, since you bring that up, jumping to the movie, there was a line from the primary protagonist that you follow, this guy, Ash Prihanal, also, who is a 45-year-old mailman from Finland who has done this race now 14 times, the 14th time being what you covered in the movie. In this, And he'd won it many times. In this case, he's actually got second. And he said at the end that it's not nice getting second, <laughs> even though clearly it was a meditative experience for him. So it was also interesting to see that from somebody who has practiced the art of using movement and running to find a meditative space to also at the end of this race getting second to say you know what i didn't like getting second though i mean with, without getting into the weeds our, our our conception in the west now of of modern spirituality comes from like east asia from india that in the last couple of hundred years has almost entirely lost the spirit that it had thousands of years ago India's greatest epic, the Bhagavad Gita, was a conversation between Krishna and Arjuna, the loftiest spiritual conversation, which literally took place on the battlefield. Arjuna was, was reticent about fighting you know, the, his opponents, in this case, his cousins, and Krishna had to talk him through all the different facets of spirituality, all the way up to surrendering to the will of the universe. And so like that idea of the physical and the spirit going together was imbued into Eastern spirituality. And we don't consider that spiritual now, but I think that that speaks to Ashbrihanal's comment that from the standpoint of a warrior, it's like you want to know that you did your best. And if you didn't do your best, there isn't that ultimate satisfaction. And in, in this particular edition of the 3100, you know, he didn't even come close to the course record, which he'd set the year before, where he averaged almost 77 miles a day for 40 straight days. It's crazy. But let's back up and set the, set the tone for this, this race. Your film follows this 3,100-mile race, which is just crazy to think about. It's, it's done on a half-mile city block in Queens in the middle of the summer for 52 days is the idea, but whoever gets to 3,100 miles first wins. The year you follow the race with the film, it's 12 competitors start, five actually finish the 3,100 miles. I mean, that's just, it's mind-blowing to even conceptualize this idea of having a 3,100-mile race. Give the listeners some context of how this thing started and how it has become what it is. So in in a nutshell, for for... For most of us who run any sort of distance above 10K, yeah, 3,100 miles around a loop seems insane. But I, I don't think it would be too different from like a 100-meter specialist looking at a 10K track race going like, oh my God, you've got to do that many laps around the track. Um, so I, I, I think it's all a matter of just, of, 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 of uh, just it's all relative. That yeah. said, that said, it's like there has there have been races across the United States, and there still are the transcontinental from San Francisco or LA to to New York City, and 
people there have to cross, if you're going from San Francisco, the Sierras, the Wasatch, the Rockies, and sometimes you might hit a 700 mile headwind all the way till you hit the, to hit, till you hit Pennsylvania. And people there talk about the logistics. They say that when you're running those distances, first of all, you, you stop looking at what's around you. Um, at the same time, you don't have access to restroom facilities, to aid, to medical, to liquid even, as regularly as you'd like. And hence, the 3,100-mile race um, takes place or staged around a half-mile loop around a high school on a sidewalk in Queens. Um, but one can get aid, the 10,000 calories that a person needs to, 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 to complete daily mileage, um, one can get that every half a mile because the crux of it is the race has a window of 52 days and competitors have to average around or at least 59 miles in order to finish within the window. And so every little advantage that you have counts, but at the same time, when you're at that distance, the location doesn't matter as much as people might think it does on paper. Because you just go into a different place, right? Yeah, you you want to <laughs> you want to be able to get into the literal a literal flow state. And from my own experience, com- not coming from a traditional running culture like the Navajo or the Bushmen, and having done multi day races, it's like it takes me a few days to get into a state where you realize there isn't really a sense of pain. It's like your 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 mind is so out of the equation. And if you have some sort of like spiritual practice, as minimal as it might be, you know, you begin to feel this just like deep abiding sense of joy, which is why people do the 3,100 mile race. It's, it's too brutal to will yourself through. It's too brutal in terms of pain and blisters and heat stroke and digestive issues, unless you're actually getting moment to moment happiness from it. You know, there, there's, there's no way to make it through. So in essence, it's like you don't just need, you know, a good mind. You don't just need like strong legs and a good digestive system. You need to be able to like turn problems into joy, as as loose as that might sound. Problems, pain, suffering. Yeah, massive like I, blisters. I, I was on a, a a multi-state prayer run with a bunch of Hopi, Navajo, Zuni, and Ute Mountain, Ute and Pueblo kids last year. And this Hopi elder, you know, the Hopis win the Arizona high school cross-country meet like every single year. Um, you know, Louis Tawanama, 1912 Stockholm Olympics, um, set the American 10K record, which wasn't bested until Billy Mills in Tokyo in 1964. It's like the Hopi, they can run. And a Hopi elder said in his language, translated into English, you know, as a morning prayer to us as we set off, he said, find joy through exertion. Like that, that's a formula. It seems like it's an ancient formula for this idea of transcending oneself and getting to getting into a much higher state of consciousness or satisfaction through running. And that was really the intent, right? So it was started by Sri Chenmoy, an Indian guru who was based in New York, Queens of all places, who was on this path of using physical pursuit to reach a higher spiritual state. And he started this race as a part of that whole process. I know it was an evolution to get to 3,100 miles. But talk about his vision. What did he want from people doing this race? Oh, it's so interesting. You know, in, in the 70s, 
in in his forties, he started long distance running in in New York City, and if you can imagine. New York City in the 70s, the day before the 1977 marathon and the 78 marathon, Fred LeBeau and the Roadrunners had Sri Chinmoy lead the crowd in a meditation, you know, in a full-on Indian dhoti, in his full spiritual aspect. Um, At the same time, a few years later in the mid-80s, Fred LeBeau wanted to revive um, uh, an event that took place in New York City in the late 1800s. They were called pedestrianisms. They were quarter-mile uh, looped races that went on for six days in Madison Square Garden, and people would bet on the outcome of, of those races. And Fred wanted to, to restart the six-day race circuit um, in Flushing Meadow Park by Met Stadium uh, around a one-mile loop. And you know, Sri Chinmoy loved the idea and provided the volunteers. After Fred passed in the early 90s, Sri Chinmoy's marathon team took over the six-day race, also added a 10-day race, and saw that you know the counterculture marathon runners of the 70s, who'd kind of got disillusioned by the, the, the mass appeal of it, and in the 80s started doing these six-day, seven-day, 10-day races. By the 90s, you know, they'd kind of inspired uh, you know, a whole new crew of people to push to 1,000 miles, 1,300 miles. And by 1997, Sri Chinmoy felt that like he needed to up the bar even more. And that was the first year of the 3,100-mile race. 3,100 miles just being a number. You know, it, it, it started at 1,000. And then he bumped it to 1,300, I think because you know he came to the U.S. on April 13th, 1964. And then when a lot of people started you know, entering that, he almost doubled it and made it a 2,700-mile race because I, I believe it's because he was born on August 27th and then pushed it to 3,100, I think, because of his birth year in 1931. Hmm. And thankfully, you know, for all those who volunteer and all those who run, he didn't bump it up any higher than that. <laughs> for people's reference, that's also happened to be roughly the distance between L.A. and New York if you ran cross-country. And for the Europeans who run the race, it, there's an odd congruence because 1,300, what well, the 3,107 miles is exactly 5,000 kilometers. So the majority of Europeans who complete the distance, they enjoy the 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 cake, which is the only prize one gets. They enjoy the cake <laughs> at the end of the 3,100 miles, and then they go tack on another seven miles to hit 5,000 k. Wow, 5 k, 5,000 k. So is this a race you can just sign up for? Like, well, well, talk about the logistics. I mean, how does this work? Do you, if you decide you want to do the 3,100-mile race, what does that mean? What, do you, what does that look like? So it's the best bargain in the world because I think it's only around $1,500 for 52 days and nights in New York City and then all you can pay. Um, in order to, they, they, they actually do have a pretty strict qualifying process, and it's, it's twofold. They want to see that a participant has done, um, has averaged at least 65 miles or so across a six-day or a 10-day race. There's actually plenty of six-day races around the world. But at the same time, they do a little bit of a recon and call the race directors of your qualifying race to ask how you behaved in your worst moment. Hmm. Uh, they they want to see like you know do, will you make everyone else's life miserable if you're miserable and if that's the case 
they don't let you into the 3100 because it's only a half mile loop. There's only 12 competitors, another dozen or so volunteers, and it's very much a team effort. If someone is inspired, if someone is just jamming on the course, it picks up everybody. But if somebody is just crabby and mean to the race organizers and the volunteers, it definitely lowers the level of kind of enthusiasm that other people have. So there's an application process, basically. Yeah, people people can like basically go to I think 3100.ws and kind of look at um, at 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 the process. It's it's really you know it's all you have to do is like email the marathon team and you know they'll tell you what you need to do and you know maybe talk you through a multi-year qualification process. And the race effectively starts every morning at 6 a.m. Is that right? When they when they kick things off every day? Yeah. So the course is around a high school um, in Jamaica Hills, Queens, a very, very, very like urban neighborhood in New York City. They The race organizers had tried for years to find a better course before they launched the first edition of the 3100. But, you know, it's like, it's, it's hard to get, it's actually impossible to get a 52 day permit to use anything in a New York city park. And by virtue of this being a high school, the city said that the marathon team could use it when school was out. So unfortunately it happens during the summer. Um, the course, unlike six day races and 10 day races, which are open, the courses are open 24 hours a day. Um, the course is only open for the 3100 from 6am until midnight. But you're you're required to be there at 6 a.m. every morning. And then how you spend your day is up to you. But most competitors find that if you want to really have a good shot of getting to 3,100 miles, you have to be on the course for as many hours as possible. And there are RVs there where people relax and rest. And there are, there's a kitchen that supplies the 10 to 12,000 calories a day that each runner requires. So they start at six, they go pretty much all day and, and then half the night. What, what is that? <laughs> I mean, again, it's hard to conceptualize, but what does that practically mean for people in terms of how much they're running versus walking versus doing other things? I mean, is it a constant sort of steady flow for most competitors or are they, or is their strategy? Are they breaking it up? How's it working that way? It's a great question. Um, the, the, the first part of it is that there's only been one pure walker who's ever entered the race. Um, actually, a 60-year-old named Yolanda Holder, an African-American from Los Angeles. And she finished the race with less than an hour to go. Um, and the, the detriment for walking is that there's only a certain speed you can ever get up to. Right. The way, the way people break down their days is usually between 6 and 8 a.m. People are taking in calories, loosening up. Between eight and noon, they're they're trying to do, you know, on a, the the faster runners will be doing about six miles an hour, the slower runners about five miles an hour, of sustained jogging, from noon to six. It's anyone's anyone's game because it can get really hot. So noon to six is survival, where you're doing like you know a mixture of walking and jogging. I mean, very rarely will people walk a full lap um, since the the loop is actually a block it's therefore you know it's a rectangle so people will like jog straightaways they'll walk corners there's some undulation about you know an eight foot nine foot uh, elevation change each lap 
So the, the hills are noticeable um, and people will walk the uphills, jog the downhills. But by 6 p.m., people are looking at their mileage for the day and they're calculating how fast they need to run to hit their daily goal. Now, the, the winners are usually averaging between 70 and 74 miles a day. So the last six hours, you know, they might be trying to put in five and a half to six and a half miles an hour. You know, that's a you know, good, solid 30, 32 mile run. You know, again, it's spread out over five or six hours. So one might think it's slow, but imagine having done 40 days of 30 mile evening runs, you know, coupled with like 36 <laughs> mile runs across the first 12 hours of your day. Yeah. And you're, shooting for roughly 10 minute miles. In, yeah. In so like when people are, 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 are jogging, they're between, you know, 10 and 11 and a half minute miles when they're walking though, they're not, they're not really slower than like 15 minute miles. You know, you're always trying to like keep up a, a level of intensity. Um, our, our main character, Ashbrihan Alto would take two to three breaks a day, but his breaks weren't more than 10 minutes long. Um, some people throw that all into one half an hour or 45 minute break, but very rarely will somebody leave, uh, you know, hours before midnight. They leave at midnight. Where do they, where do they sleep? I did see at one point in the film, they're coming all back in a van back to the start and then things are kicking back off again at 6am. Where are they going? The, the marathon team that puts on the race rents apartments, usually within a half a mile of the course. And um, there's, there's also locals that host runners in their own kind of private quarters. Um, and then a van comes every morning and picks them all up. But some runners like choose to cool down and warm up with the half mile bike ride in the evening and morning. One of the things that was fascinating to me is that you had a huge range at the end on there. There's this little scoreboard in a sense on the fence at the, the start and finish point that shows everybody's miles and kind of tracks them from day to day. And you have a huge range for the 12 competitors and some people don't make it, you know, they get through 2000 miles instead of 3,100 miles are they going for the full 52 days in that sense, or are they just getting to a point where they can't make it and they stop? You know, the, the official rule from the race is that people have to average 50 miles a day. And if they start seeing somebody dropping um, well below 20 or 30, or they start, start seeing people that are having serious problems that seem like they're not going to recover from, the race directors have the, the permission to uh, to remove somebody from the race, but everybody else is going for it, and everybody else, you know, is is has the mindset from the very beginning that they're going to finish a thirty one hundred mile race. The only thing in terms of the competitors that I've seen do it, everybody who's done it, who's who's towed the line, has been qualified. The caveat or the kicker is how many bad days one has during the race. You know, if you have like 10 50 mile days in a row all of a sudden you need 10 70 mile days to make up that average right. and that's a big jump right yeah going 50 to 70 again huge yeah so people people are really really mindful of their daily totals and they 
on days when they feel good, they push it so that, and or days that are cooler, they they try to make up miles that they might lose further on down the race. So what are they eating and drinking? The majority of the runners, the vast majority, actually eat a vegetarian diet, and I, I think you know it's like like when 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 people run ultras, you know, no one's eating, you know, whoppers at every aid station. You know, somebody somebody might take like a gigantic burger at some stage, mainly for mental purposes. But the runners in the thirty one hundred, they're not eating for tomorrow. They're not eating for things to be digested in seven hours or eight hours. They kind of need the energy right away. Yeah. So they're eating four or five meals a day that are about a thousand or fifteen hundred calories. But in addition to that, every mile or so, they're taking a Dixie cup of something, uh, whether it's a high fat soup cold soup, whether it's a smoothie, whether it's watermelon, you know, some runners like our main character, Ashbury Hanal, I mean, he would eat pizza and cheesecake all day long. Huh. And so it's, it's really so much more about calories in and the, the, the volume of calories that you can get in and digest adequately than it is about any specific type of, of diet, like raw or vegan or paleo or gluten-free or whatever. Yeah, he said early on in the film that he didn't worry about that stuff too much. He's just like, just do what do what comes naturally, basically, and uh, the rest will kind of take care of itself. But it would seem to me, though, that you would have to have a fairly prescriptive approach to getting calories and hydration so that you don't overheat, so that you don't get into a deficit. But he didn't seem to have that. It's 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 an unusual thing. It's like when people train for the English Channel, they have to put on you know twenty or thirty pounds just for insulation, and multiple um, participant multiple time participants of the thirty one hundred realize like they kind of need to come into the race five to ten pounds overweight because they find that for the first three or four weeks you just you I mean you just can't eat enough. Like you're you're really burning your fat stores the first three to four weeks. Um, and the, the next three to four weeks, it's like your body is just churning through carbohydrates and probably be, be probably beginning to burn some of your, your musculature. And the last two weeks, unless you're really, really careful, you know, you'd start burning muscle. It, it's almost an impossible race to adequately, you know, it's, 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 it's a race to survive more than it's a race to like actually race. You can't fully fuel for that kind of work. And very, very few people who've done it are, are in the headspace and have the kind of confidence to actually push themselves every single day. So that part to me is fascinating, not only watching the protagonist, Asprihano, but also just the general demeanor of all of the participants. It seemed like a very mellow group, very even keel group, a very generally joyful group in spite of the suffering. How would you describe the personality types you encounter? That's a, again, that's a, that's a great question. I, it's, I think it goes to the kind of like understanding of the race directors of the type of personality that's needed to finish the race. And, and not to say that they discriminate based on personalities, but the type of person that generally wants to do the race is doing so 
with a couple extra tools than most of us who do shorter distances have, like they have a deep sense of patience, you know, in, in a short, and I'm saying shorter distance, like less than 24 hours. Um, like in a, in a race that's 24 hours or lower, I mean, you can push and you can say like, I can wreck myself and maybe take a few days or a few weeks or a month to recover from this effort. But with the 3,100, people have to have like a, a, a sense of stillness and the kind of idea that no one day is going to win or, or make you lose the race. Um, whatever you can't do today, you can make up if you've got the right attitude. Um, and it's also an understanding that if you let a problem fester in your mind, it could stop your race altogether. If you're really fixated on your blisters or on the heat or your lack of calories or what somebody said to you or didn't say to you, then your race is over. But if you can kind of stay within yourself and really focus on getting developing a sense of happiness that's abiding and that transcends all of the vagaries and, and minutia of the race, then you kind of have the ability to complete the distance. There, there have been very, very few cases of people that have willed themselves through the race. And, and those folks that did so, they had like, they had an, ex, they had exceptional running pedigrees. Right. And they probably couldn't do another day when they got to the finish, I would imagine. Yeah, and they, they kind of made everybody else. It was not naming names. It kind of made everybody else's lives kind of miserable. <laughs> That's not the point. No. That's not the point. I mean, you even see it in the volunteers. It seemed like the whole group involved with the race, the race directors, the people checking their mileage every time they cross through the loop. I don't know. I don't remember the gentleman's name who had done the race before, who was talking in, to them and checking off their mileage. Had some sort of maybe Irish or Scottish accent or something like that, who was just happy. He was just a happy dude. And it just seemed like the volunteers the same way. It was just, that was the energy of the whole experience. I mean, that's the great thing about like the ultra day, ultra distance circuit. You know, it requires so many people to support selflessly. And those folks out there, you know, in other races pacing or just manning aid stations, like they're as important to the experience as the actual distance or the race course. And it's, and it's no different with this course. It's like, you need positive energy around you. Like you have, you have enough, like, like dark voices in your own head. You need the types of people around you that like rain or shine, no matter if you've got a frown on or not, they're just telling you, Chris, you look great. <laughs> Even though you know you right, look right. terrible. You, know, you need that. It- do you so? Do you think again talking about the protagonist Ashbury Honnell? That's not his given name, right? That's his name that was basically chosen for him as a part of following this guru, and so he's been practicing meditation and this sort of spiritual journey for I think he said almost half of his life by the point of the film. So do you think his metal, so to speak, was built based on that practice or was there something in him that was just already there? So, you know, Ashbury Hanal has done a number of six and 10 day and thousand day races in New York City in addition to the 3100. And I, I added it up. He has raced, like not 
trained, but he has raced 53,000 plus miles in the parks and on the streets of New York City, which is the equivalent of a little over 2,000 marathons. <laughs> so that that's like, I mean, that's like race, racing. So that, that's like racing a marathon a weekend for 39 years straight or running 100-mile weeks for 10 years straight. So, that, I mean, that takes a different type of person. <laughs> and, you know, and also it, it, it takes a different approach to running where he looks at, he, he can get joy out of just being out there. And I've seen him like run two mile races and finish like in the middle of a pack. And I've seen him do 3,100 mile races and finish, you know, with all time bests. But he loves to run. He just loves being out there. He doesn't care about the temperature. He doesn't care about discomfort. He doesn't care about whether he's able to eat like gluten-free or sugar-free. It's like, again, he's happy with Coke and pizza. And it's this level of enthusiasm that's absolutely contagious. And I, I do think that like that's come from his spiritual life. You know, I think that, you know, his spiritual life helped him realize that he can be a have, he can do simple things like be a postman and just run in straight lines and get a tremendous amount of joy out of it so and how does he do this stuff i mean taking 52 or i think 47 days out of your life to do this race in the case of this film for him how does he do that how does how is he a postman and then leave go and do this for 47 days so it, it it's it's like he's he's the Alex Honnold of the uh, of the the multi distance world. Like he lives in a tiny little cabin. Like his entire life is structured around from his from his job as a paper boy, like delivering papers ten hours a day, to his training to his like goals. Everything is focused around running. And he does when he when he takes time off to do the thirty one hundred, you know it's unpaid time off. So the rest of the year he's just kind of like saving up, saving up, saving up. Um, and then when he goes, he turns off his gas, his electricity, shuts down everything, you know, flies to New York, and uh, runs the race. And the day the race is over, whether it's forty one days or forty or forty seven days. The next day he's on a plane back because he's got to start working. Got to do it. Wow. So he's just, he's just dedicated to it. It's hard to relate to that as somebody who quote unquote just does marathons. How did you relate it, to it? It is, but it, it, it isn't also like when, when we spent time for the movie in the Kalahari desert with the Bushmen, you realize like, if if somebody out there got injured and wasn't able to run, like there are no ramps, there's no like you can't get a wheelchair, you don't have crutches. Like the idea is like you better not get injured. And if it's an injury that's like comes from lack of mobility, lack of training, poor lifestyle, poor nutrition, well, that's on you and that's all preventable. So it's like in these traditional running cultures where running is life or running is like a deep part of a spiritual or religious practice, you know, they, they transform their entire lives around their love of running. And I can't do that. And, you know, a lot of people can't do that, but it's like, we can look at that as an example. 
and say like, you know, what do I need to change in my day-to-day life to make myself a better runner? And with all your runners and with your community, it's like, that's what I know you guys kind of strive to do. You know, push people in a direction where their their life gets changed simply through their love of running. It is a life-changing pursuit if you let it be. And that's the thing. You got to let it be. Yeah. And that that's what I learned through making this movie. It's like, you know, I'm not running any more than I did before. It's not like I've all, all of a sudden started doing like three workouts a day <laughs> or anything like that. But, oh, man, I get so much more out of my runs now. It's like there's so much – they're a much more important part of my day. I'll like cancel on other stuff just to get more out of the hour and a half or two hours or hour that I that, that I, I put into it. Um, and it's because I finally realized that like – running can actually make me a happier person and a better person in the short term and in the long term. I was telling you about the book Elite Minds before we got on by Stan Beecham. I was talking about it on a recent episode here as well. He's big on the mind-body connection. And I couldn't help but think about that when I was listening to you on the Rich Roll podcast tell the story about your six-day race to try to understand better the 3100 mile race you did a six-day race where you kind of went out hard as we tend to do kind of crush 50 miles pretty quickly but then your hamstring seized up a little bit and then at some point it miraculously let go and you're able to finish strong again at the end of those six days for me i couldn't help but think that that twinge whatever it was in your hamstring actually was a physical manifestation of something in you that was that was that needed to be addressed that you were able to address in those five days where you were struggling so that you could find this new place. Do you believe that? I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I, 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 I do believe that. I mean, it, 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 it makes sense, you know, and, you know, to look at it that way again, I'm, I'm going to have to like digest that <laughs> after the podcast. I hadn't thought of it that way either. But you know, like I, 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 I like to, to, with you know, with the complete understanding that I am not an expert in anything. Like I, I don't even like to use the term mind body because, like in my experience in that six day race, it's so much further beyond the mind, and it's not necessarily trying to like like the mind body connection makes it sound like you're in control. Hmm. Right? It means like you've got control over the whole situation. Your mind is so strong that you can will yourself through problems and you know what you're doing. You know, in, in that six day race, you know, for, for viewers, for listeners that, that didn't hear the other podcast after the first day, I was a wreck, didn't want to really do the race anymore, but there were plenty of 70 year olds that were out there for the love of it. And I was praying, you know, I was like praying to God, praying to the divine, you know, in my own tradition, like, please, please, please. Like I'm just shuffling. I'm shuffling through 30, 35 miles a day, can't lift my right leg. And I just want to be able to run again. And really just, I, I promise like you, like, oh Lord or divine or, you know, great spirit. Like I promise, like I will run with, with you in my heart and, and not, not, not about time, not about like, you know, my place or anything like that. And like you mentioned, like with the day to go, that hamstring all of a sudden, after four and a half days of killing me, it like loosened up in a very noticeable way. And it was literally like my prayer had been answered. 
And I ran with so much joy and enthusiasm and like hammered out 85 miles, you know, over my last like 19 hours, you know, literally from a walk to 85 miles. And I looked at that as going like, you know, if I can figure out if there's a, if there's a, a higher power in me that I can harness when I'm running, and if I can harness that when I'm running, oh my God, like, it's not saying that I'm going to become, you know, Mo Farah, but I'm going to become the best runner that I can ever be if I really just throw my mind out of the equation and like find other parts of my being that have a lot more presence that have a lot more joy and that have a lot more like connection to the universe and everything that's going on around me. That's the self-transcendent part that Sri Shenmoy dreamed about, right? With this 3,100 mile race. Did you see a transformation like that in people as you filmed them? I did, you know, like there, there is this runner and and this is so far out there. Like I really, you know, ask ask forgiveness for for anybody that that doesn't like woo woo stuff. And I'm not a woo woo kind of believer. But there's one runner who's in the movie 3100 Run and Become named Yuri Trostenyuk. In the year 2016, he and he he's he's an ultra distance runner, a plumber by trade from the Ukraine in his early 50s. And in 2016, he in broken English was just very humbly telling a, a, a volunteer that he'd just seen angels on one of the street corners in New York. Mm. And you go like, okay, <laughs> Yuri, you know, time to get right. off the course, You're dehydrated, you know? And, and the way I understood in hindsight that that was real was after the race was well and done, when I was driving out to the gym every morning at six, I would see him out on the course still logging 30 or 40 miles. And it was because he still felt the presence of those angels on that corner. And he felt that by running through that area, he could tap into that energy. And he did. And it's like, and I, when, I, when I went and spent time with the Navajo and the Hopi, it's like, that's why they run. They don't run for distance. They don't run necessarily for competition. Running is a way for them to physically and spiritually travel from power location to power location, you know, on their reservations. And if anybody listening has been to the Grand Canyon or to Four Corners or Monument Valley, that's kind of all within traditional Navajo territory. And so you see like why they believe like nature has got power. And by running through it, they imbibe that power. And that's exactly what Yuri felt in his own words and from his own like tradition on that race course. It's crazy. And he Yuri, Yuri, Yuri won the race the year that you covered it. There was an interesting quote from Mashpihano early in the film. He was talking to a friend in a coffee shop or something, I believe in Helsinki where it seemed like he was making a decision about whether to go back, having done it 13 times. And he said, if I go, I have to try to win, and then I suffer again. I thought that was such a fascinating statement because it not only embodies this concept of duty in that in some ways he's duty-bound to go do this, but also that if he's going to to do it, he has to win and he has to therefore accept the suffering associated with that. 
to get what he wants out of it, which is this transcendent experience. And to me, in a lot of ways, that embodies why any of us do anything hard in life. Marathons being a perfect example in in you know a much less intense way for for those average humans like me who can only cover that distance but there's something about pushing yourself to limits that, and suffering that takes you to a new place and it was just fascinating to see him sort of recognize that connection that hey not only have i in some ways duty bound to do this because this is a part of me but also if I do it, I have to accept the suffering associated with it. I, I think, and I'm going to, I'm going to use the Alex Honnold free solo example again, that, you know, it's like, if, if like when, when Alex climbed, you know, El Capitan, like there were, there were people around him, there, there were expectations and it wasn't like he could just commune with the mountain and do it in absolute silence. He knew that that would be an, that would be absolutely impossible just by virtue of the location in Yosemite. And so for Ashbihanal, it's like, you know, whenever he enters these races, you know, there's expectations from other people that he's just going to keep on doing better and better and better. At the same time, like he probably hopes to do better and better and better. And, you know, keeping in mind that that conversation was recorded in February, 2016. And in the summer of 2015, he set the course record for the 3,100 averaging 76 and a half miles a day across 40 days. So an exceptional, exceptional effort. And so the question is like, and I think it's the same as for all of us who toe the line of any race, you want to do your best. You want to do personal bests. And how much does that play into race strategy? How much does that play into how much you're going to push yourself? And does that ultimately like really affect the amount of joy you're going to get out of a race or not? I don't have any answers to that, but it's just, it's a, you know, we, we like running is complicated. <laughs> Very complicated. The other thing that struck me about watching this is that it seemed like in the, even though there were people around and people helping and all those things that for, for the most part, it was a very solo pursuit that yes, there was collegiality associated with the event, with the volunteers, with the fellow competitors, but everybody ended up in their own zone in some way that allowed them to get through this. And, and one of the competitors who didn't really have that space, the woman who ended up dropping out because of heat related issues, she had her husband right there helping and he was on top of her every single time she came through. And as I saw that early in the film, I'm like, there's no way she's going to make it with that kind of, that kind of oppression from her support crew, not to mention her husband is, is that you think reflected too that it just, it becomes an actual solo endeavor that you almost have to journey alone. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult. And in the example of that runner, Shamita Akenbach Koenig, who's an exceptional thousand mile specialist from Austria, you know, I, I, I think people who, who have loved ones, you know, who, who help them in their training, can, can see the difficult position that we put those loved ones in. You know, it's almost more painful for a spouse or a partner as a helper when they see their loved one just suffering. And imagine not only helping your, your loved one for a marathon or for like a 24-hour race, but in the case of Shamita's husband being out there, you know, three weeks and seeing his wife like deteriorating 
in a way that's normal for a race like that, but still it's extraordinarily alarming in day-to-day life. Um, that, that said, you know, the 3,100, dare I say it, it's the most difficult race in the world, you know, not because it's exceptionally hard to complete it. Like one might, you know, judge, you know, vis-a-vis Barclays marathon, but you just have so many darn miles and everything that could possibly go wrong, you know, within someone's normal running year, running 3,100 miles across a whole year, you know, it's going to, that's all that stuff is going to happen times 10 across the 52 days from severe indigestion to severe dehydration, to just exhaustion, to mental exhaustion, to blisters, to chafing like you wouldn't believe. And the problem is you can't take a day off. (laughs) There's no room for error. It's like, no, so it's like, how do you get back out there and not only gut, gut it through your problems, but like, how do you connect with something that's going to give you the inspiration to just keep moving? And, that, and that's, that's exactly, I think, what you're speaking of. It's like the most solo endeavor. It's like the guy, what's his name, Colin o, o, O'Brady, yeah, O'Brady yeah. did the solo, solo across uh, Antarctica. It's like it's all white all the time. He was just looking like down at the ground to, at his GPS you know, pointer you know, at waist level and just keeping that line the whole time. And like this, this almost feels to me as as solitary as that endeavor. So let's talk about some takeaways for the, again the average runners like me who are just doing marathons. Or this summer, I'm going to try to do my first fifty miler, which makes that are you going to this ma- gonna it makes great? it feel like no big deal talking about thirty one hundred miles when I'm only when I'm only doing fifty, or at least no big deal talking about fifty miles when I'm talking about thirty one hundred miles. How do people train for this thing? Great. That's, 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 you know, I think everybody's a little different, but from, from what I've been told by the current women's world champion who's in the movie, Kaninika Janikova from Slovakia, she says it's all about time on your feet. And during the week, you know, she might do two hour jogs four days a week. But then on Saturday, she'll do 30 miles in the morning, and then she'll work a double shift at a restaurant where she's a chef. And then on Sunday morning, she'll run another 35 or 40 miles and do a double shift. So she's effectively doing close to 18 hours a day, both on Saturday and Sunday, taking Monday and maybe Tuesday off. So for her, it's not about pace at all. Um, Although for the people that have finished with the fastest times, they've got exceptional marathon times, exceptional 24-hour times. Um, but from what I understand, it's, it's time on your feet and working up to you know, 120, 150 miles a week, maybe with half of those coming you know, on the weekend. And just standing, doing, moving otherwise. And eating. And like so much of it is like, and I have to say, like, even though I only run marathons, like I am an absolute expert at like digesting a couple Dunkin' Donuts every <laughs> long run. Like last week on an eight mile run at mile four, and this is the problem with New York City, like there's Dunkin' Donuts and Baskin Robbins everywhere. So like mile four, I took in five hundred calories of a scoop of ice cream and a glass of chocolate milk. But I was so proud of myself <laughs> that I digested it and I hammered on. 
you have to have that ironclad stomach. That seems to be a prerequisite. I, I picked that up. I used to be in management consulting and I would run at night. That was my thing. And so I would work long days on a project, go have a steak dinner with a client sometimes, and then go run straight away after a, a big steak dinner. And that basically means I can now eat anything and then go for a run. Practice. There you go. So it's like, like literally like, you know, training and eating is a big deal. And it was the best part of my six day training, even though I didn't feel like I trained for it. I went on some 35 mile runs through New York city and just took my credit card. Mile seven was donuts. Mile 12 <laughs> was smoothie. Mile 20 was ramen. Mile 30 was milkshakes. And I would do that. Every <laughs> it week. makes it more it fun great. too. Oh, great. So, but Ash he was talking about, or you talked about it, I think in one of your interviews that he did a climb on Mount Fuji to prepare, that it wasn't just about the physical time on your feet and miles. It was also about maybe doing something that was challenging and also doing something in a beautiful venue so that he could almost transport himself back to that place while running on this boring city block in Queens. Yeah, you hit two points there. It's like I, I definitely see the runners in the 3100 like actively channeling memories where they will try to like recapture memories and, and be in them for hours or even days. And so Ashprihanal likes to spend off years going climbing in the Alps, or in this case, we went to Mount Fuji in Japan so that he could just take everything in and store it as like a little, like, uh, like, little TiVo'd episode in his head. Um, at the same time, like he loved that trip because everything went wrong. He'd, he'd never broken in his boots. By the time he got up to the top of Mount Fuji, which nobody really climbed in the winter because it's just horrific, his feet were covered with blisters. And the next day he had to like walk back 12 miles, four hours in these horrific boots with split open feet. But after that, he, he knew that like there's no way in the summer's race his feet would ever feel or look as worse as they did on that trek, on that climb. Um, so he, he loves also the memories of pain because he can go back into those and go like, oh, yeah, what I'm feeling right now is nothing like what I felt in like the summer of 2011. If I can do that, I can do anything. Yeah, yeah, basically. I call those, we have some workouts and long runs here in Austin. I call them anything workouts. I can do if I can do that if I can run that course if I can do that workout at those paces then I can certainly do whatever it may come on race day. What about Absolutely. the mental side? Again, do you, do you do you find that they also have some? Obviously, Aspriano clearly has a meditation practice that he followed. Did all the runners have some sort of mental approach that that they practice daily, whether it be meditation or something else? You know, for, for the most part, and, and having talked to some of the, the, the race directors that have done the race since the beginning, they say without a doubt, everybody who's ever run the race has had some sort of spiritual practice, whether it means going to, to mass and, and praying for three hours, or whether it means chanting a mantra, or whether it means like just like learning like spiritual songs or, or, or poetry, like people need something that's not just repetitive, but 
reminds them of like a really deep feeling that they can use to combat their pain. Again, the, the visualization, like you don't learn how to visualize just in a run, like those guys that do that, like Ashbihan, I'll practice that during the year so that you can channel that tool um, and use that kind of reflection or that memory or that the feeling that you're conjuring through that memory to overcome the moment by moment um, issues that you have on the course. What's your biggest takeaway as a human from having been able to film this experience? I'm going to paraphrase our Navajo character, Sean Martin. Sean said that there is like, you, you can go to in this day and age, any country in the world and find somebody to go running with. And that person probably won't even speak your language, but at the end of that run, you know, you'll have a connection that you will remember for the rest of your life. There are, are very few activities, running's one, like eating a good meal is another, that you can just do with other people and that totally transcend nationality, ethnicity, political party. And what I like to think of, especially in like, you know, the tumultuous political times is now, I, when I'm on the trails, I've never looked at another runner and thought about his or her political party. Like when I've run a race with people, I got it so elemental. And I'm not thinking about all the stupid stuff that we always think about when we try to judge or, or interpret other people's actions or activities. And in my mind, it's like there's very few things that are going to make America better. And running is one of them. If everybody like got a chance to like learn to love running, God, our country would be so much more enjoyable and tolerable and people would be so much happier. That's the truth. I like to say there are no masks, no labels and no prejudices when it's 5.30 a.m. and you got to go run 20 miles. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. And it's like, we all have so much respect for like the, the, the old timers, the new timers, people who want to get different things than we do, different shapes, different sizes, colors. It's like, if you're out there at 5.30 in the morning, it's like like you're a brother or you're a sister. So this has been a fascinating conversation. Really, really appreciate it. If, if people want to watch the film, how do they go find it? It's easy. It's on Amazon and iTunes and Google Play and YouTube. Um, Basically, all of all of the platforms that you know you can download a movie on. It's the, the, the movie Thirty One Hundred Run and Become is on. And I believe it's it's only like eighty minutes, so it's fairly digestible in length, but really, really powerful. And you don't just cover this thirty one hundred mile race, but also other running cultures, including this crazy one thousand day monk thing in Kyoto, which is is a, probably a an entire podcast on its own for a different day. Absolutely. You know, Chris McDougal did a, uh, an interview with us a couple of weeks ago and, you know, he, he said he felt that the, the movie was what, you know, was, he called it the running movie of the year and he said he loved it. So for those out there that love to look at the unusual, deep traditional sides of running, I think there's a little bit in it for everyone. And for me, it makes me think that 50 miles in August through through the mountains north of Vancouver will be no big deal. So, so thank. Oh, that so, sounds great. You'll, you'll be 
so well on that, Chris. Thanks oh, for that inspiration. And thanks for joining us, Ajay. Really, really appreciate it. And of course, go out, everybody, and go check out this movie, 3100 Run and Become. Really, really powerful. Thanks again, sir. Thank you very much, Chris. Have a good one. 3100 Run and Become. Go watch the movie so that the next time you have a hard workout or long run or race that you don't think you can do, then you'll know you can comparing yourself to this 3100 mile race. Thanks again for listening. This has been episode 122 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.